everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the University of Louisville Norton Children's Hospital. I'm also a member of the PCICS Connections Committee. Today, I have the opportunity to interview Lauren Haney, a pediatric clinical pharmacy specialist at MUSC. She presented her work on recombinant versus plasma-derived antithrombin at the PCICS meeting. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining me. So tell me a little bit about this project and what got you interested in this. So we regularly use heparin to anticoagulate patients, you know, as you know, in the, in the um, Pete's cardiac ICU. Um, quite often, we do not achieve the levels of heparin or um, efficacy that we would like to. So we've been using some antithrombin-3 to help supplement um, and hopefully increase the heparin effects um, of a therapy. So tell us a little bit about your project design. It was a retrospective, you know, single cohort study at, at MUSC. It was between 2010 and 2014. We had um, the opportunity to use two different products in the hospital, mainly from formulary issues and some supply issues. So we were using the plasma-derived product and then switched to the recombinant product. When we did that, we saw that there were some differences in what we felt like in the um, antithrombin-3 activity levels that we were seeing. So we decided we would look at the two groups and try to compare if there was a difference between the two products. And tell us about the patient population that you studied. Was it all comers who received AT3 in your hospital or was it just post-surgical patients? Yes, it was all comers. So patients in the NICU, PICU, and the PEDS cardiac ICU. As long as they were less than 18 years of age, then they were included. Uh, We did not include mothers. What was the indication for giving AT3 replacement in this cohort? (laughs) Great question. Um, So during the study period, we would use an AT3 level activity of less than about 80%. Then we would consider giving uh, replacement to those patients. Um, And since then, we felt like that was probably a little too aggressive. And now we use more like 60% um, before we would actually replace AT3 levels in a patient. Um, and that's also assuming that their PTT or anti-10A heparin levels are not within the, the desired range at the time. So if the heparin levels are within the desired range, but they have a low AT3, you don't necessarily supplement. Correct. But right. if they have a low AT3 and their heparin levels are not in the desired range, you would supplement AT3 before giving additional heparin? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, we have found that you know if the, if the PTT is subtherapeutic and we increase the heparin drip, and we gave AT3, um, we do think that you can overshoot and probably increase you know, bleeding complications for the patient. And did you do any dose adjustment of your heparin uh, infusion while you were doing um, the AT3 replacement, or did you leave it the same? Our practice is to leave it the same. Um, one of the limitations of our study, we were using electronic medical records in addition to some paper records you know, early in the study, um, so it was difficult to find some of the heparin drip rates. Um, so there it is possible that some of the heparin drip rates increased you know, at the same time that we gave AT3, but our, our current practice is not to make both adjustments at the same time. Yeah, some centers have reported lowering the dose of mm-hmm. heparin infusion when you give the AT3 to prevent the, the concern for um, 
bleeding complications. So I was just wondering if you all did any adjustments like that. No, that's not our common practice because usually, you know, if we're giving AT3, we we're worried about thrombotic you right. know, risk. And so we would like to, you know, increase the amount of anticoagulation that we're doing. So. Yeah. And do you, does your center routinely monitor AT3 levels in all patients receiving unfractionated heparin therapy or just if they're deemed to be sort of heparin resistant? So our patients, if they're on ECMO once and they're neonate, once they reach about 40 units per kilo per hour, then that triggers to check in the AT3 level. Um, and then patients, you know, that are older, we know that their heparin requirements are less. So if it's a, you know, a one-year-old, if, if they were reaching probably, probably closer to 28 or 30 units per kilo per hour, then we would consider checking an AT3 level at that point. Okay. Um, but we don't right off the bat check the level. What was the dose that you typically used for the AT3 replacement? <laughs> uh, great question. <laughs> so um, the dosing, you know, in the package insert for both of the recombinant and the plasma-derived products, um, it's a formulation that you have to calculate. Um, you know, it's based on the, the goal activity level that you'd like to achieve. And so, you know, some people will use 100%, some will overshoot and use 120%. So just that varies. Um, and then depending on what the AT3 level is, that's incorporated into the equation. And then also the patient's weight. And then depending on the product, there's a factor. Um, I think one of them is 1.4 and I can't remember the other one. Um, so it's kind of a, a complicated formula just, just to derive a dose. Um, we did find that using the formula was similar to using a dose of around 50 units per kilo. So we did, for a while, just dose a patient based on 50 units per kilo. Um, and most of the time, those two doses lined up doing the formula and then kind of fudging the factor and just using the 50 unit per yeah. kilo dose. So. And if you had a larger patient, because the products are so expensive, yes. typically people want to give one vial or no more than one vial. So if you had a larger patient that was going to get one vial plus some from another vial, would you just round down and give the one vial? Yes, yes, our practice is one vial and then see how they respond and then if they needed an additional vial then we would give that as well. But usually one vial is enough to kind of bump them up. Yeah. You know, enough. And I know in our institution we found that we've had to take into account the volume of the ECMO circuit in mm -hmm. dosing patients with um, AT3 and so we actually have a factor that we add in based on the size of the ECMO circuit. Um, if we're going to replace AT3 in our ECMO patients. Have you uh, noticed the need to do that at all? Or No, and that's kind of tricky as well because some of our ECMO circuits have changed, you know, over time. Uh, the beginning of the study was in 2010, so, you know, quite a, a, lot, of, a lot has changed. Um, and one thing that changed were the oxygenators that we were using and then also some of the devices in the roller pump um, and the tubing seems to be, you know, much less now. Right. So more, we would, you know, give a dose and then, you know, check the AT3 level or, you know, PTT and anti-10A um, or even ACT, depending on what we're monitoring. Um, and really looking at hopefully the clinical effect of the AT3. And so tell me a little bit about the findings from your study. What did you all learn from this? <laughs> so we found that with the um, plasma-derived products, we were using fewer doses. Um, that the plasma-derived product is more expensive, you know, if you're just looking at it, you know, per unit, per, per vial. Um, but we actually found that using the, the um, plasma-derived product over time, you know, per patient was actually more cost-effective um, and also seemed to raise the AT3 activity levels more than the recombinant product. Um, so the, the plasma-derived product, you know, we're using less product and getting more effect um, yeah. as compared to the recombinant product. And was that true across all the populations that you studied? Yes, yes, as a whole it was. Um, in, the, in the NICU, you know, neonatal population especially, um, we felt like 
you know, you would see the greatest benefit, you know, of the AT3 um, activity level, uh, probably because those patients, you know, have a lower intrinsic, you know, AT3 level. So we saw, definitely saw more of an increase in those patients. Yeah, very, very interesting. And were you able to break it out into neonates versus for um, cardiac versus non-cardiac indications for ECMO um, and see if there was any difference between those populations or did you just look at, I don't know if your numbers were big enough to break it out into those subgroups? We haven't yet, but the majority of our patients were post-cardiac. Um, so I feel like, you know, just eyeballing the data right now, um, it does seem like our data might be skewed, you know, uh-huh. just because of num- the number of post-cardiac patients that we have. Yeah. And were most of the patients in your study on ECMO? Uh, no, they were not. Okay. So, so kids with a clot or reasons for therapeutic right. infusion. Yes. Um, and then, you know, valve you know, patients with valve replacement on, on heparin. And then, you know, we've been doing an increasing number of ventricular assist devices. And um, a lot of our Berlin patients, you know, were receiving several doses of antithrombin-3. So especially um, in the early phases, you know, they're just harder to manage. And, you know, we want to make sure that we have them on therapeutic heparin. Yeah. So. And did you see any difference between the two products in bleeding or thrombotic complications? We did not see a difference. Um, one limitation of the study uh, was that, you know, we were looking at um, discharge summaries, you know, and postoperative notes, you know, whether they had immediate washout um, and such, um, and then also uh, looking at, you know, ultrasound imaging, um, looking for other complications. So um, some of the documentation was limited, especially with um, the paper records that we were using from the early part of the study. Um, so we do feel like there was probably a higher risk of complications that we just weren't able to capture. Yeah. And um, how did you sort of define those bleeding and clotting complications? Did you use like ELSO complications or if they just needed surgical re-exploration for bleeding, that would count? Yeah. So we look at both. So our, um, you know, our ECMO group, you know, looks at the ELSO, you know, complications and they have a database. And so we had used that. Um, and then the, um, we also looked at some of the, you know, the, the operative notes as well. I know there's been lots of studies, especially in the ECMO patient, utilizing antithrombin-3 in this group and antithrombin-3 replacements. And there have been studies that have shown um, decreased heparin dosing, et cetera, but not really something that has shown a difference in outcomes. Intellectually, it makes a lot of sense to replace AT3 in patients receiving a fractionated heparin. But none of the studies that, that I'm aware of have really shown a difference in outcomes. Right. So what are your thoughts about that? Um, do you think we just haven't done the right studies? No, I mean, I do. It, theoretically, it should make sense. If you supplement to AT3, then the heparin should work better. But it does seem like that isn't always the case. And we still you know, have patients experiencing thrombotic complications um, and or bleeding risk as well. Um, one thing that we haven't been doing more recently um, is using less antithrombin-3 um, and, you know, really you know, pushing the heparin doses, and if the patient seems like they're not responding to heparin, then switching to direct thrombin inhibitors. Um, so over the past probably three to four years, you know, we've been definitely been using more um, DTIs, especially bivalerine. Yeah, and that is something that we have done as well in our institution. The product itself is more expensive. We're not uh, supplementing with AT3, and I think in general we're doing less blood draws because it's much. It seems much yes. easier to get um, in the therapeutic range and sort of stay there. And I think more and more centers are are switching earlier to direct thrombin inhibitors um, in patients that they are having difficulty getting anticoagulated on unfractionated heparin. 
Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, we've definitely, been, I think we feel more comfortable using it in our ventricular assist devices, knowing that they're going to be on it, you know, more long term. Um, and then with the ECMO, I th feel like we're probably less comfortable, especially if it's a neonate, you know, because heparin can, can be easily reversed, you know, if needed. So I think, you know, daily head ultrasounds and, you know, really monitoring for bleeding risk right. until we become more comfortable. Yes. I will say the half-life is pretty short yes. on the direct thrombin inhibitors, um, so much so that doing like a circuit clamp-out trial with that on board is, doesn't work out so well. <laughs> so I think yes. that um, while, the, while there's no direct uh, reversal agent, it does go away pretty quickly when you stop the drug. Yes. You mentioned a couple limitations of your study. Were there any other limitations that um, you found in, when doing your study? One other limitation that we have experienced is, you know, there's no standard approach. You know, we do have kind of a loose, I'd say, protocol that we use. You know, once the heparin drip is at a certain rate, you know, then we would check in AT3 level, but it wasn't always consistent. You know, and it's hard, you know, to try to, to match some of these patients as well because, you know, some patients, you know, just have more complications than others. So um, I feel like our approach to patients and then also trying to match, you know, some of the patients were also limitations of the study. And what do you see as the future directions for this? Do you plan to do further prospective work in this area? Um, possibly. Uh, lately, I feel like we've been using more, you know, direct thrombin inhibitors, so our numbers might be even lower, you know, at this point. Um, but I do still feel like in the neonatal ECMO population, you know, we are continuing to use heparin, and then also, you know, our, our Norwoods, you know, that are freshly post-op, we're still using heparin mm -hmm. in those patients. So, um, you know, those might be patients that we could prospectively, you know, look at as compared to some of the VAD patients that we're just not using heparin as much in. So. Yeah. And I think the valve patients, too, will be another population that people will be slow to yes. move to a, <laughs> to a different anticoagulant just because the stakes are so high that yeah. <laughs> people yes. are nervous about doing that. Yeah, and I feel like the valve patients, I mean, hopefully we're transitioning them to, you know, oral agents True. quickly, too. So, yeah, I don't know that we're all comfortable enough to, to go from a direct prominent inhibitor right off the bat. So. Right, right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about this uh, very interesting project. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.